As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. What are you laughing at? I'm just ready to dive into another fantastic episode of Pod Save America. <laughs> All the news is good today. That's, that's the subject. <laughs> I'm just a little. I'm a little tired. I, uh, there's um, some sort of cat fight that breaks out behind my house really? now for a, a couple nights. Like, like vicious, meow, meow. like, like feral cats, feral cats, <laughs> viciously fighting. And it wakes me up with a, it's really frightening. First of all, I thought it was an earthquake, but then I thought it was maybe a cat on my roof. You don't send Pundit out there to let him know what's up? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. (laughs) There's no good outcome for that. Have you looked through your uh, 8X HD security camera from uh, Simply Safe? No, I brought that one inside. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) On today's pod, Donald Trump is back in Iowa and ready to run with the full support of the Republican establishment. The race in Virginia between Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin is way too close for comfort. And Congressman Adam Schiff drops by the studio to talk to Tommy and I about his new book, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. It's a real, uh, it's a real feel-good sort of... <laughs> it's always darkest before the dawn, I guess, or something. Uh, but first, uh, we got some big Pod Save America scheduling news, everyone, so listen up. Because okay. you're going to tweet at us when, when it happens and you, and you forget that you heard this. Starting in two weeks... We'll be releasing this episode first thing Tuesday morning instead of late Monday afternoon. Again, that's Tuesday morning. First thing when you wake up, it's going to be right in your phones uh, instead of late Monday afternoon. This is just a slight schedule change that's um, going to help us make sure we capture um, news on Monday mornings. All the biggest news is breaking which, on Monday these w- days. Yeah, which sometimes we miss and we record and it's a whole, you know, it's a whole thing. And also your boys want their Sundays back. All right. I don't hear any fucking complaints. <laughs> That's what I was hoping someone would say. I was hoping someone would just be honest about it. Uh, I don't need an 8 a.m. email from John Favreau saying Trump bad. How? <laughs> <laughs> but this week, how? <laughs> I mean, I think you might. Just a, um, just as biff. One more thing before we start. Um, what's new with Love It or Leave It? How are the outdoor cine lounge shows going? They've been awesome. It's been a blast. We're doing live shows in L.A. every Thursday night, leading to our Beacon show in New York on November 12th this week. We'll be joined by Akilah Hughes, Solomon Giorgio, Brandon Wardell, and Larry Wilmer, all returning champions. We have great shows every week, crooked.com slash events. All right. Let's get to the news. Uh, We've been talking a lot about Biden's agenda, which is incredibly important. But while we 
uh, wait for Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to make up their fucking minds. Uh, it's starting to look like Donald Trump has made up his. Uh, Kirsten Cinema apparently running in the Boston Marathon today. I was very disoriented by that news, but also the news that the Boston Marathon is today because, yeah, of course, COVID. we're still in COVID world. And I always think about April opening day. Yeah, It's just marathon training. It's a pretty involved process, requires a lot of time and effort that could maybe be used better elsewhere. Like at a wine internship? Or writing a bill. Look, she's just certainly not helping with the negotiations in Congress. So maybe if she wants to run the marathon, yeah, run away, I guess. Yeah, go ahead. You're right. You're right. Uh, anyway, uh, the twice impeached one term president held what he called a save America. By the way, the trademarks there is getting a little close yeah. to uh, to our show here. Cease and desist, sir. Uh, anyway, he, he held what he called a save America rally at the Iowa State Fair, where he was joined by the state's top Republican officials for a speech in which he focused once again on his attempted coup and teased a second run for the presidency. And I'm telling you, the single biggest issue, as bad as the border is, it's horrible, horrible what they're doing. They're destroying our country. As bad as that is, the single biggest issue, the issue that gets the most, the most pull, the most respect, the biggest cheers is talking about the election fraud of 2020 presidential election. <laughs> We did. But America's not great right now, so we're using the same slogan, make America great again. And we may even add to it, but we'll keep it. Make America great again again, because we already did it, right? We're going to make America great again again. How about that slogan? You guys on board? Uh, Tommy, what do you think? So make America great again again is <laughs> it's hilariously stupid. It is. But it's exactly the kind of perfect amount of stupid that will make uh liberals mock it online and reinforce the message ad nauseum I am mean, i wrong no i mean it just i don't know i think it's pretty memorable it's we all know memorable. it i'm not gonna forget it yeah it's pretty good so make america great again was not his original line he sold from reagan but yeah like we all remember it and i think in a weird way this kind of works pretty well when biden's numbers have dropped and there's sort of a bit of this like covid malaise feeling i don't know like these rallies are his focus groups right we it's used to make fun of the 2008 Clinton campaign for like rolling out new slogans and painting buses and Trump just like goes up in front of a bunch of people and riffs on stuff and whatever lands becomes his slogan. I mean, I think it's tough to argue that um, life was uh, great in America between 2016 and 2020 when every single poll showed huge majorities of the country um, saying the country was on the wrong track. But that was never really the point of MAGA. It was right? never the point. <laughs> America is great when he's president. The, that's exactly it. The point that's that's always exactly. been the point. It's no you can go all through the sociology. Oh, what what did he talk about? He's he's yearning for an America that no no no. It was just like <laughs> there's no thought behind there's this. There's no thought behind it. It's when I'm not president, the country sucks. When I'm president, the country's great. Right. That's what the followers love. Mm -hmm. the, the, no need to go below surface level there. Right, and just you know because he is an avatar for their grievance. He has no. It's an identity driven campaign. So when he is president, it is the victory for their. Their identity when he is not their identity has been defeated shout out uh to some of my favorite slogans from the 2008 hillary clinton campaign my favorite of course always will always be strength plus experience equals change <laughs> because that means uh you also have the corollary strength plus experience divided by change equals one <laughs> which has always been my favorite formula in all politics Math equations make great political slogans. That's always been the case. Well, the best thing to do is to not make any choices and then just tack them together. Like, and, and uh, on the bus. like John Kerry's 2004 slogan from the campaign I was on, stronger at home, respected in the world. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
Real change. What, what was the other? What was the other Hillary one that oh, we always love from Iowa that she put on the side of the bus? Yeah, yeah. It, it just ends it in like, time to pick a president. Real change, strength, the experience. Real, time real, to pick a president. Big problems, real solutions. Time big, to pick. Yes. A president. there you go, Tommy. That, yeah. Which I go. just, I always loved. You just know you've kind of had a trunk situation of too many people <laughs> throwing in ideas because the fact that it is time to pick a president is what we all know going into a presidential election. So, uh, slogans aside, joining Trump on stage was Iowa's Republican governor, both Republican members of Congress, and 88-year-old Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, who accepted Trump's endorsement for another six-year term, despite calling his actions on January 6th, quote, extreme aggressive and irresponsible. That was Chuck Grassley back then. Uh, Here's Chuck Grassley uh, over the weekend. I'm thrilled to announce tonight that Senator Chuck Grassley has my complete and total endorsement for re-election, Chuck. I was born at night, but not last night. So if I didn't accept the endorsement of a person that's got 91% of the Republican voters in Iowa, I wouldn't be too smart. I'm smart enough to accept that endorsement. I mean, points for honesty? (laughs) That was the weirdest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) I just loved it. Ah, golly gee, um, I have to be here because of political expedience. I'm an 88-year-old man staring at the sunset years of my life, and I'm going to sell my fucking soul to be up here with this guy. I will die in office. <laughs> that was basically what he said. <laughs> that was basically That's what it. he said. That's the campaign. That's the I Grassley would, campaign. I would rather supplicate myself to this monster than have even a moment of quiet in which to face the totality of my life in its end. And perhaps that's what he's trying. Maybe he's just trying to avoid that. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, it's rare that a politician literally reads a poll on stage, but there was just an <laughs> Iowa poll by Ann Seltzer that found Trump at 53% approval, which is the best number he's ever had in Iowa, even when he was president. Well, and this tells you all you need to know about where the uh, uh, what Grassley is doing there. That same poll showed that two thirds of all voters um, want someone else besides Grassley to be senator. Yeah. And so you, ha- you see that number, and then you see the Trump approval, and you're Chuck Grassley. You're like, yeah, sure. Why not? What do you think Grassley's embrace of Trump says about not, uh, where the Republican Party is headed, not only in 24, we can put 24 aside, but just in 22? I mean, I think it shows just what we've seen before, which is constant short-term thinking. Because if you listen to the other parts of that speech, it was an hour and a half long speech. He got to the Grassley endorsement at 70 minutes into it. <laughs> we got to, we dragged Chuck Grassley's old ass onto stage for less than a minute and then pushed him back off. He's 88 years old. But like, what, what I don't know that these guys understand is that the MAGA movement wants to fucking destroy Mitch McConnell and the entire establishment. Anyone who has criticized him. Like I was listening to Steve Bannon's podcast on the way to work this morning. As you often do. As As I do. do, Bannon says that McConnell is more dangerous to the MAGA movement than Pelosi and Schumer combined. He wants Trump to pull his endorsement from any Senate candidates who say they will vote for Mitch McConnell as leader. And next week he was previewing an interview with Peter Schweitzer about Mitch McConnell's wealth, right? Like they're all in on just destroying the establishment. And like, that's the drug deal that Chuck Grassley just made, though. I don't know that he knows that he made it like. Well, and Grassley's a McConnell pal. Yes. And was getting some booze at the rally. There were some there were some Trump fans. Very, very limited booze. I saw people tried to play that. It was like three people. Well, but I think I think the 
two thirds of all voters who want someone new shows you that like the Trump Grassley is not a natural favorite with Donald Trump's base at all. Ninety one percent of Republicans in Iowa in that poll like Trump. That's 10 points better than Grassley. So that's some weakness. Well, you sort of that's that's where the boos are coming from. I think you see this. You saw this with Rubio doing the same thing. I think there's this sort of lie they tell themselves, which is I do this event. I kiss the ring. I, I, I give the speech, I embrace him, and that I can go back to being my normal self. I can be the kind of politician that I was. But of course, you know, be very careful what you pretend to be. You are what you pretend to be. There's no going back. Now they have fully embraced this. Now these are the people that, that, that he will feel beholden to. They are the core of the Republican Party moving forward. And once they're in, once they are office, they have, to, they have to govern exactly as they campaigned. And so we're just sort of stuck in this doom loop with these people. I think the calculus for every single 22 candidate in a competitive race is that if you embrace Trump's endorsement, you avoid a primary and you have the best chance of getting his voters. And if you don't embrace his endorsement, you get shit on by Trump, you get a primary, you might not get the voters. So why I don't I can't imagine any of them in a competitive district that reject Trump's endorsement. Glenn Youngkin didn't and he's he he needs to reject it probably more than most. No, certainly not in Iowa where I, what Trump went Iowa by what, like seven something? Yeah, something like he, that. He mopped up. Yeah, every Republican primary now is a machine that turns whatever you are into a Trump by the time you get to the end of it. It was interesting to me to hear the speech and hear him go really hard against the both the Build Back Better bill and the infrastructure bill. Like there, there's the first 20, 25 minutes of the speech was actually looked like it was on a prompter and it was sort of a concerted message about like crime, the border, inflation, China, Afghanistan, leftist, socialist, blah, blah, like all the stuff you hear. But then he said, as we speak, Joe Biden and the radical left Democrats in Congress are trying to ram through a five trillion dollar wild spending binge that costs more than the entire sum of the United States has spent on any war in the history of our country. And then got that, that was weird. Off. That was weird framing to me. Yeah. More than the war. Well, there was, you know, Politico reported that there's a bunch of uh, Republicans who uh, are a little nervous that uh, Trump is just only focusing on in all of these rallies on the big lie and 2020, which, again, he did. Like, as you pointed out, Tommy, he was like on script, on message and this message about Biden and the country and Biden's record and radical left and all the all the greatest hits. Violent criminals, bloodthirsty gangs, illegal aliens, deadly drug cartels, trans people. I don't know if he got to that, but he will. So he's got all those. But then the coverage becomes about him and the big lie because he, you know, wanders off message and focuses on that. And, um, you know, the Republicans think this is bad politics for them. Do you think that's true? Do you think they really believe that? I came away feeling like the big lie arguments are more effective than I thought because it's a blizzard of random facts and accusations that are state by state about like chain of custody of ballots in Georgia and serial numbers on ballots here. And it's sort of like it just washes over you. And if you're not fully versed in this stuff, I'm sure you're like, oh, that sounds kind of bad. I I don't know. Like what I want them to be, what I want Trump to be focusing on this if I were a Republican candidate Absolutely not. But what choice do they have? I mean, that's even, very. I, that's I agree with that as a lot. <laughs> right. I mean, even he's saying it. They don't have know, a choice. <laughs> he kind of he doesn't he he sort of bounces around the words. But what he's saying when he gets to it, even in the clip you played, is nothing is resonating more when I'm speaking. So I'm going to keep coming back to it because I feel like it's working. I think it's working for me mm-hmm. when I talk about the big lie. That's where I feel the passion from the crowd. So I, I think it's all. It's also the ultimate grievance for a politics of grievance that he's been, you know, practicing for the last several years. Right? You were robbed. You were cheated. You were silenced. And 
me running again is about us getting revenge on the people who cheated us. That is all you need to know. It's not about issues. It's not about anything else. So in some ways, I think he might have a better sense of his base than certainly these other Republicans, though they have another problem, which is getting back independent Republicans who went to Biden, and that might not be as effective with them. Totally. And he's squeezing McConnell here. I mean, he's out there saying everyone should vote against both of these, um, the spending bills that Biden has put forward, but also that the debt ceiling is this powerful card and McConnell should use it. And that what he did recently, cutting a deal, was a huge cave and that that yeah. shouldn't happen again. Like there, This is a scary bunch of political incentives for Mitch McConnell and for all these Republicans. So former Democratic Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer has said that she's running against Grassley because of what happened on January 6th. How much effort do you think Democratic candidates should be making to remind voters that Republican candidates are 100% behind the guy who incited a violent insurrection? Love it. Like how, how much of that, how much of the message do you think that should be? I mean, we've talked about this. I don't, I don't know the answer. I don't know what polls well. I do know that it represents like an incredible break with our history and is one of the most significant and dangerous things any politicians have done throughout our entire lives. And by that standard, of course, it has to be central to it. How do you tie that back to the larger political agenda of Democrats and make this part of a larger message about economics? I'm not totally sure, but I do think that is the challenge. Like, how do you make people care about this? I think the reason Chuck Grassley feels comfortable being on that stage when right after January 6th, he was appalled by Trump at a time in which Mitch McConnell felt free to criticize him. Uh, tells you something about how short our memories are. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what you do in a situation in which people really do forget. I am scarred by the fact that most voters, especially swing voters, hated impeachment and they sort of hate looking back and the blame game stuff in Washington. But I also, like when I see Trump recording a video for Ashley Babbitt's family, the woman who was killed on January 6th when she was trying to climb through a window to get to the area where members of Congress were all hiding, uh, it's clear that he thinks she's the victim that his supporters were the victims, that he is supportive of what they did that day and is just sort of waiting for the right moment to fully, fully say it. And so, I, yeah, it does. For me, at least, it raises the, the stakes for the January 6th committee. For someone like Abby, like, I, I, I agree. I would cynically poll, test the best messages and talk about those and not act like making this my focus is going to do anything if it doesn't help me win. He's making a martyr of an insurrectionist is what he's doing. Um, it's It's insane. And it's not... Look, I think... One thing we know for sure is that in January, when the insurrection happened, Trump's numbers were a lot lower. A lot more Republicans were criticizing him, a lot more elected Republicans. And part of why he's rebounded, like what you just said, love it, is that people's memories have faded. So one argument is remind people, right? And I think, mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with you, Tommy, I'm sort of scarred by the impeachment stuff too, but I do think at least the first impeachment, now we look back at it like, complicated story whatever else the second impeachment and the insurrection i think made a a much bigger difference in people's minds at least in the public perception i think the insurrection did i think there's no evidence that the impeachment did i think i think it's all caught up in the same thing it was all a couple weeks well one thing we know whether or not the impeachment itself made this happen the insurrection was so stark for people that a majority of people believed he should have been removed for office for having committed it um these morons should have taken care of him politically when they had the chance the mcconnell's of the world who are now getting attacked by him but one thing we have learned after years of donald trump is when he is out of the spotlight he is more popular. Like some of his best polling has come when he disappears. Some of his worst polling has come around ACA repeal and even around impeachment when we saw him at his absolute worst around, um, around Access Hollywood. That's a even. good point. I, I have a theory here that being banned from Twitter and like mainstream media coverage 
might have might be beneficial to him right now he, because he's sort of hiding out in the right wing media swamp world. This and, is why Vice President Kamala Harris was absolutely wrong <laughs> about the need to remove Donald Trump. I was hoping Listen, K-Hive, you and I, you know how much admiration and respect I have for how you have never forgotten my my bad tweets. All right. The Des Moines Register write up of the Iowa poll talked about the whole the theme of it is like absence makes the heart grow fonder and why his numbers are up, including with independence. And they mentioned that suggestion that being off social media might be helping him because people hated his tweets. I don't know. I I think he can do a lot of damage on social media as well. But it was interesting. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, look, his his popularity ebbed and flowed. He was on Twitter the entire time. This is like when people tell me to stop drinking Diet Coke because it doesn't help you lose weight. It's like I've been fat on Diet Coke. I've been thin on Diet Coke. Diet Coke is not the issue. Like the question (laughs) is the (laughs) the larger narrative is about how much time are we really focused on Donald Trump and his worst proclivities and his policy agenda? And how much of the time is it turned to Democrats, turned to Hillary Clinton or what have you at the moment? Meanwhile, like all his aides are trying to avoid you know, well, not all of them. I think Cash Patel and some of the others are say they're cooperating with the January 6th committee. But Steve Bannon is loudly saying that he will assert executive privilege along with Trump, even though he hadn't worked at the White House for years when the January 6th attack occurred. Yeah, he's also well, let's talk about the in- investigation now, because uh, there is the news that, you know, Bannon's rejecting a subpoena. Um, some of the other aides are, are cooperating, even though Trump told them not to. Trump's also trying to hide documents by claiming executive privilege. Uh, fortunately, the White House just announced that President Biden will not invoke executive privilege for Trump. Um, while one uh, six committee chair Benny Thompson and vice chair Liz Cheney threatened anyone who refuses to testify with criminal contempt of Congress. What do we think Trump's so afraid of people finding out? That it was a coordinated effort involving top officials and outside advisors, including top conservative legal experts, to overturn the election and install Trump as president despite losing the election. I think you might be right. <laughs> I think that might. I think. It, I think we kind of know what he's trying to hide. I also just think it's better to be fighting than than going along, even if even if we are we have well, the basics. Just, at best, he'll drag it out. Right? Well, I was wondering that. Like, don't you think uh, Steve Bannon's dream here is that he's a he's a martyr for you know uh, getting a criminal contempt of Congress and resisting the subpoena and all that bullshit? Steve Bannon is loves that. Probably kind of a schlubby guy who's not that bright who needs two things. One, media attention. Two, a billionaire to back him. He lost the Mercer family. That was his billionaire that left. Now he's got this dissident Chinese billionaire who's backing everything he's doing. And so he's kind of back. Yeah. There's a few things, you know, uh, Trump's complicity in the insurrection, which you feel like is widely known, but there's plenty of uh, details that could highlight how bad it was and how deep it was. Um, Jonathan Carl has a new book out. Um, you know, and, and some of the stuff in the book we've heard before. Trump loved the insurrection. He bragged about the crowd size. We've heard that before. I don't know. Have we heard that before? I thought that was new to me. Bragged about the crowd size on January 6th. I had heard that before. Um, the one that I hadn't seen is that he refused multiple times to say in the video that his supporters should leave the Capitol. Um, he also told the Department of Justice to say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to, quote, me and the Republican congressman. I think I had heard that We've before, heard that, too. Yeah. Uh, this was a fun one that I hadn't heard. This one was good, yeah. Trump believed that wireless thermostats made in China for Google by a company called Nest uh, might have been used to manipulate voting machines in Georgia. Uh, and Trump asked the director of national intelligence to look into it. I didn't realize that my Nest could change votes. Again, <laughs> totally crazy. But like you rant about that in front of a crowd and they're like, oh, my God, I didn't know that the thermostat could do that. Like, I don't there's no one's fact checking this stuff in real time. It's just a brain worm. He just throws out little crazy theories and and people believe them. 
I hate it. I mean, we talk about. <laughs> I hate it. We but we talk Exhausting. about like bringing this stuff back up and what it's going to do uh, and whether it's going to have an effect. I don't know. Obviously, we're all partisans. You know who we're voting for. But when I read these stories about one six and new revelations about Trump, it does get me in a place at least where I'm like. Fuck, we got to get serious here. This is very scary that this mm-hmm. could happen again. Like I, it does, it does work a little bit. I do, and I do think one lesson from impeachment was, even though a lot of what we learned was already reported, it was riveting and dramatic and important testimony that actually I think shook people just by dint of being good television and being really captivating and really capturing just how dangerous it was. So I, I, I think sometimes we are not good at imagining how these details will resonate if they're part of a big hearing, if they're part of a big press moment. My problem with this, that theory though, is like, what is the end game? We all watched these sociopaths literally storm the fucking Capitol, kick down doors, beat cops to death, People got shot, and here we are a few months later in the approval ratings, back up higher than it ever was before. You know what I mean? There's no end game that prevents him from running again or letting his approval pop back up. This happened in impeachment as well. And so, like, I'm not opposed to, like, relitigating these things, having a, a on-camera conversation about what happened. I just, I guess I'm sort of skeptical that this stuff sticks long-term because it hasn't to date. So here's a question, because who knows what right. effect it's going to have? We can't predict that. You're the Democrats on the committee. How do you make sure that after, like you said, we had two impeachments that led Trump to be the likely nominee in 2024. After that, how do you make this a little bit more effective? How do you put out the best foot forward? I do, I do think the fact that Thompson and Cheney are talking about threatening criminal contempt, which can get you a year in prison and like a $100,000 fine, uh, well, could actually force people to testify that have not testified before and offer firsthand accounts of what might have happened that day. That to me is interesting. It requires, I think, a full floor vote to get to the criminal contempt. Um, I don't know what that means, like to issue it, I guess, whatever. Yeah, or to vote on to vote on whether you, you have to enforce vote on it, it maybe. Yeah, to enforce yeah, it. Maybe. But uh, hearing those people on the record in front of a hearing is, is interesting. It would be new information potentially. Yeah, and I, like, I, I hear you. I, I do think like some of this is we are fighting against fundamentals that have been true for, you know, the past five years of dealing with Trump. There is a massive right-wing propaganda machine that exists to paint Democrats as evil and paint uh, paint Republicans as victims. And then there is a giant mainstream apparatus that teaches the controversy uh, and treats Washington as a cynical and broken place. And into that kind of storm, we like throw these messages and watch them whirl around and come apart. Uh, But like, what else are we supposed to do? What are we, what, what else, what other options do we have? We have to fight within this horrible, ridiculous media, media ecosystem. And then I don't know, do the best we can from the outside to pressure uh, cable companies to drop Fox and OAN. Like that, that is where the real fight then has to turn. If what you're saying is these messages don't make a difference, I completely agree. We are stuck with the system we have. I also think in some ways, the media narrative is a zero sum game, right? So if, if we're getting close to November of 22, what would you rather the headlines be? Uh, Democrats still fighting each other about the Build Back Better agenda or uh, the 1-6 committee is talking about, you know, uh, Trump's complicity in inciting an insurrection? And I mean, if I had just had to pick, certainly I probably... that straw man of the worst case versus a better case is, yeah, that's an easy pick. But like if they pass the Build Back Better agenda and they, they do something, they pass the infrastructure bill, like then that's more of an actual conversation about what you should be highlighting. I don't, I don't know the answer. I think it's a data driven decision. It's probably state by state. At least yeah. we can all agree that the worst headline for us coming out of next week would be activists stop Kirsten Cinema from getting 
getting Gatorade midway through her marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think they're they're threatened they're going to do. Are they going to try to do no, that? No, there's people like they're quote quote unquote bird dogging her throughout the course and protesting her throughout the 26.2 miles. Even me, you just put me back in a headspace that's like, what the fuck are Democrats <laughs> doing? When I had previously been a headspace about, hey, let's make sure that fucking Trump doesn't win again. Wait, you're, <laughs> are you anti uh, marathon bird dogging? No, I think it's. I, uh, don't make me we're gonna, go to work we're gonna, on that. Yeah, I hope they all gonna, fucking trip her and then give her some toilet paper for when she goes into her next bathroom. We're going to no, Rosie, we're gonna Rosie true, Ruiz, uh, Kirsten Cinema. any of that stuff. Some, some activists are going to come in in the first mile, follow her for a while, then they come in at the 10th mile, Jump share on the, the subway, bid. yeah. I do think on the committee, though, you have the committee. It's happening, right? There's going to be hearings. You make it about the future threat, not just about the past, right? You've got to, what could happen next? You make it about Trump's complicity as much as possible, tie him to it. And you also have to fucking tie Republicans who, like Grassley, flip-flopped on Trump, make them own it, yeah. right? Make them own it every single day. And the other thing is, I think you have to make it about the entire coup, not just the insurrection. So the, the attempt to overturn the election and the threat that Republicans and especially Trump will try to overturn elections, uh, not just in 2024, but also in the midterms in 2022. So I think that's, and, and you do all that, do I think it's going to change anything? Exactly. I, I'm I'm probably more doubtful yeah. uh, like you are, Tommy, but I think we have the investigation. You might as well make the best of it. And we win and lose on the margins these days. Of course. Right. I mean, I, I think that all the, the Ashley Babbitt video to me ups the stakes of the January 6th committee in a big way. It doesn't tell me that like candidates should be talking about this every day. Well, I also, th- I also think we can talk about politics and, and what's going to be popular and what polls well, but at some point uh, it's pretty fucking scary that Donald Trump could very well be the Republican nominee and and potentially be like 40,000 votes away from winning the presidency again. And you might as well talk about that threat because it's coming. But mm-hmm. I, And I do think part of this, our Politics aside, like put the poll down and just talk about it. Right. And I do think like part of this frustration, because it's turning on messaging, is because what we really like to see is Democrats in Congress collectively, unanimously recognizing this is the threat that it is. And then what we'd be talking about is the effort to pass a version of H.R. 1, to pass reforms to the Electoral College, uh, uh, to the the Electoral Count Act. Like there's a host of reforms we desperately need, but people like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema are kind of sleepwalking through um, uh, this crisis. And we are left with the best that we can do, which is trying to message to people how important it is that they turn out anyway. Well, and not to make it more complicated, but the you know you pass HR one, and uh, a lot of the things that Trump could do to overturn the next election don't get fixed, right? Yeah, well, which I, is another problem. You pass the, be- the new better version. Yeah, the new better version. Yeah, which helps a little bit, but still, it's brutal. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. All right. Let's talk about Virginia, where nearly half a million people have already cast their votes in a way too close for comfort election that's just three weeks away on November 2nd. 538 polling average has former Democratic Governor Terry McAuliffe leading the Trump-endorsed private equity CEO Glenn Youngkin by just two and a half points, 47.6% to 45.1%. The race for control of Virginia's legislature is believed to be just as close. This is all despite Joe Biden winning the state by 10 points in 2020 and Virginia Republicans embracing Trumpism, with Yunkin recently calling for a cyber ninja-style audit of the state's voting machines, and the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, Winsome Sears, 
refusing to reveal her vaccination status. Very cool. Uh, what's going on, guys? Why do you think this race is so close? Love it. There was an Emerson poll that I thought captured something interesting, which it said that by a larger margin, 55% to 44%, voters expect uh, Terry McAuliffe to win. There's a kind of like, mm. um, kind of uh, 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 complacency among Democrats and a kind of exhaustion amongst Democrats. Yeah, I hadn't heard that that statistic and it made me feel actually better. <laughs> yeah, and, and then the other piece of this is, uh, you know, the Washington Post looked at some of what happens when Trump is on the ballot when he is not. The Trump effect was most evident in big spites and turnout in heavily Democratic areas such as Fairfax, Arlington, and Alexandria in the D.C. suburbs. And so, you know, Youngkin is running as this sort of suburban norm court business dad. Meanwhile, he's trying to fl- fan the flames of the base with critical race theory and, and anti-trans stuff and anti-COVID stuff. And everybody across the state are seeing all these ads that make him seem like he's not that big a deal. And so it's just in this off-year election, we are desperate to try to convince Democrats that this is real, this is happening, McAuliffe can lose, and it is important. And back to our last conversation, as you said, in some of these suburbs, Democrats turn out when Trump is on the ballot. This is why it's maybe a good idea for Democrats to talk more about Trump and the threat from Trumpism. I like suburban norm core business dad. Yeah. And very tall, as we talked about. Why do we do these off-year elections? It's so stupid. I mean, people... Just Virginia New Jersey. All these stories that people keep saying, like, we're exhausted by these elections. We're sick of this. Of course you are. You've been voting every single year. Yeah, Virginia has it pretty rough. They should think about that. And the mood music is just bad for Democrats right now. I mean, Biden's approval is down. It's been down since August. COVID isn't going away. There's broader, like, economic concerns. I think that, more than anything, is behind this and it's creating this sort of enthusiasm deficit for Terry in the Democratic base versus Youngkin's like sort of partial MAGA base. We're not sure if they're full. Like I, he's, he's dancing around where, he's where doing he a lot stands. of dancing. He's trying to do both things, right? He's trying to seem normal to the people that want a normal governor. And he's trying to kind of do the critical race uh, uh, pantomime to the people that are uh, Trumpy. Yeah, this and the audit. The audit is a the big audit. deal. The audit's interesting. The, the, the critical race theory is new, but not new, right? Uh, critical race theory is the new uh, term of art. It's a new boogeyman du jour. But the it's the like un- MS thirteen. It's like MS thirteen. This, this right. race is MS thirteen. Yeah. But what they're really the the TV ads right now are about a comment Terry McAuliffe made about whether parents should have a say in what's in public school uh, curriculums, and that is a decades old fight. The the public school funding versus charter school funding fight is a perennial fight for, between Democrats and Republicans. So part of it is just sort of like you got a new flavor to this. MS sixteen nineteen is that anything? Oh, I see. What you oh, there. yeah. I bet it's not anything. That's upsetting because that's going to be in an ad somewhere. It's not anything. <laughs> it's not anything. Don't worry. It's not anything. Uh, so I said uh, almost half a million people have voted so far. What, if anything, can we learn about the race from the early vote? I don't know. Not I much. Don't, I don't know why. It, what's, what, what, is there an answer to that question? I have no idea. Of course we know. What do you what, think what, it what, is? We know. What do you think the early vote means? So, we think it's significant in the ways you do, probably. I, I brought that up because there's a lot of early vote numbers floating around, and I want to give people uh, uh, um, some context around this. Uh, Virginia is a state where there's no party registration data, so you don't know. Um, like in California with the recall, mm. we knew from the ballots, which were Democratic ballots and which were Republican That's ballots. We, question. we don't know that from Virginia. Fucking guy. Um, and the, uh, <laughs> sorry, just trying to educate some folks here. That's number one. The other big one is the state made it a lot easier for people to early vote since the last gubernatorial election yeah. in 2017. A yes. great thing. But that's why it's really hard to compare between the 2017 early vote and the 2021 early vote because there was no way to know. There was just <laughs> it was a fucking scam question. All yeah. it's like double the double the number of people have early voted. Yeah, a lot roughly. more people. Yeah, but um, here's the, the there is one little 
And one little thing to watch what here. You got? In the uh, in the heavily Democratic northern Virginia suburbs, Alexandria, Arlington, Fairfax counties, um, they currently are making up just 17% of the early vote so far. Mm. In 2017, they made up 33% of the total that's early vote. Good. Listen, that's you fellow Zoobers, get those fucking ballots in. Yeah, that's a little... That's a little more uh, nerve-wracking because yeah, that's like more that. apples to apples than that's, by the end of the It's time yeah. we go Boston to the walls. No. But, no <laughs> is no. that something? Is that something? <laughs> Listen, for those outside of the metro uh, D.C. area, Boston is a, uh, an area in northern Virginia. It's also a metro stop. It's where Hillary Clinton's campaign was located in 2007-2008. Uh, Maybe remind some of those voters that Glenn Youngkin has been endorsed four times now by the guy who just made a video uh, trying to make... Ashley Babbitt, a martyr, an insurrectionist, uh, who tried to attack the <sighs> building where probably many people in Northern Virginia work. Yeah, so that might be something to do. Uh, Terry McAuliffe has been saying he's frustrated with Democrats in Washington for not passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and that he thinks the three point five trillion dollar price tag is a little high for Build Back Better. Uh, what do you think that's all about? Anyone got a uh, anyone got a guess as to why Terry's doing that? Why a governor? Why a gubernatorial candidate says Washington sucks? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, exactly. And a couple theories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's given the Heisman to the uh, the Washington Democrats who are fighting amongst themselves. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're pissed at Washington. They want action. And honestly, the th- I saw people getting upset about the three point five trillion thing. It's a free shot for Terry. He knows because where this is headed. It's not going to end up at three point five trillion. So now he gets credit for being like, oh, I didn't thought it was too high. I'm sure there's some genuine sentiment there, which he, he like his political incentives are one month long. He's saying pass something that I could run on right now. The rest of us are fighting about how much climate change money will be in the bill for a decade from now. But, you know, he also knows that, like in northern Virginia, transportation funding, something that might alleviate traffic. That's a big deal. That's the thing people care about and will vote on. I mean, we've been saying nonstop how popular the Build Back Better bill is and how crazy it is for people like Josh Gottheimer and them to um, say that the infrastructure bill should be passed first. Does it give you pause at all that, that Terry McAuliffe, who's obviously steeped in the polling in the Virginia race, is like, hmm, maybe maybe we should pass infrastructure? It, it actually doesn't because I don't think what he's saying is I, I think we shouldn't pass this despite the obvious uh, popularity of the bill in my state. I think he is dealing with the political reality that we've spent the last two months talking about a top line number and nobody fucking knows what's in it. And it's not his job to educate the entire country or the state of Virginia as to what the Democratic agenda in Congress is. And he's just trying to win this race. Yeah. I wish more people knew how much it did for health care and child care and a whole host of other things, but they don't. He's just saying, hey, guys, I got got an election in a month. Throw me a bone here. It makes me think that, man, I really hope they fucking come to an agreement on Build Back Better and then pass both of those fuckers before the race in Virginia. <laughs> Three weeks. I mean, they've said October 31st, that's the new deadline, but I really hope they get there because I do think if you have, back to the media narratives, if you have a bunch of headlines that Joe Biden saved his agenda from the dead and Democrats passed this thing a week before the uh, Virginia race, yeah, I'm, that's going to help Terry McConnell. Seems better than not having them. That's yeah. right. It looks like annoying infighting. Wait, the deadline is October 31st? That was the That's the latest new deadline because uh, that's the surface transportation bill that they reauthorized right. for 30 more days runs out. The, the Halloween 31st. metaphors are going to be insufferable. Yeah, I, you thought that the Biden shows up at the congressional softball game metaphors were horrible, but this is the, Halloween's going to be even worse. Don't do it to us. Fooled back better. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ.
<laughs> is that something? Is that something? Can we have a we need a cut from uh, this pot of just all the times Lovett says is that something? Is that anything? R- riffing on slogans, I like. Um, it. Washington Post talked to some Democratic state legislators in Virginia who've been knocking on doors in swing districts, and they said that a lot of voters are saying they're tired of elections, they're tired of national Democrats, and that they don't think that Youngkin is as polarizing as Trump. What do you guys think are some of the most compelling arguments for why Democrats should keep the governorship and their majority in the Virginia Assembly? You're talking to organizers. They want advice. They're going door to door. What do you say? So we have 100 Virginia House of Delegates seats also up, right? Correct. We have Correct. a current 55 to 45 majority. Mm-hmm. Things that Virginians have gotten done, they've expanded voting rights. Mm-hmm. They've removed uh, abortion restrictions, which is becoming more and more important after the Texas ruling in this Mississippi case the Supreme Court's looking at. They passed some gun safety laws. They abolished the death penalty, legalized marijuana, new protections for the LGBT community. So they've got a lot of stuff done. Build yeah. on that. If you thought as, a, as, an, as an American you're frustrated with Washington not doing shit, in Virginia all the Democrats did shit. <laughs> they Band did conver- it over the last couple of years. Banned conversion therapy for kids as well. They expanded insurance protection for reproductive health. Uh, I would also point out too that, you know, Youngkin is trying to see moderate as we talked about. He's running on this audit. He's running on... Uh, critical race theory, but also down the ballot, the Republican Party in Virginia is funding some of the most vicious and anti-Semitic attacks that you can see. I mean, they are taking Jewish candidates and they are making their noses bigger and putting them in front of a bunch of gold coins and mailing that out to people. That is who Youngkin is running with. That is the coalition he is trying to uh, be elected with to govern. This will be, I don't care how he started out or I don't care what kind of posture he's trying to to sell. This will be a radical right-wing governorship and a radical right-wing legislature if they get their way not subtle i'll also go back to my hobby horse here which is remind people how scary republicans could be and what they could do to roll back all that progress you know one thing that i think is really indicative of who glenn youngkin is uh was when he told a bunch of activists um i'm not supposed to talk about abortion um but once i get into office i will restrict abortion access yeah um and i think you could on abortion, on a whole bunch of issues, he gets he gets into office and we lose the assembly. All that progress that Tommy talked about is going to be rolled back by these Republicans. Yeah. Um, and they could help Trump steal the next election. He's he's proposing a cyber ninja style audit uh, of Virginia election, even though there has already been an audit. There, did there was already an audit. The audit already happened in Virginia. Yeah. I mean, it, as the Supreme Court is chipping away at, at Roe v. Wade, these state based abortion restriction laws become more and more dangerous. It's Correct. I really keep an eye on. Uh, they'd also roll back vaccine requirements just as Virginia is starting to recover from the Delta wave. So that's not great. And um, I saw this just today. Yunkin in an interview was asked about climate change and he said he's, quote, not smart enough to know whether human activity is causing climate change. There's your moderate North yeah. Core suburban. And you're not very right smart, there. sir. Uh, I love this from the Iowa poll, by the way. Trump had an 86% favorability with Iowans who are not vaccinated and won't get vaccinated. So if you're wondering why he won't come out in support of the vaccine and help get his base vaccinated, it's because he knows they don't want to do it and he's not going to take the hit politically. And same reason why, you know, uh, the lieutenant governor candidate in uh, in Virginia is not revealing her vaccination status and why Youngkin is running against vaccine mandates, even though he's being like, oh, I think personally it's great to get the vaccine. Uh, but he wants that base as well. Yeah. Um, anyway, this should be a wake up call in Virginia. Like we 
we did a great job around California making sure that everyone woke up, got involved, volunteered uh, to make sure that the recall didn't succeed. We need that same level of effort, probably even more uh, in Virginia. So we need everyone to get involved. You can go to votesaveamerica.com slash Virginia to figure out where you can donate, where you can uh, volunteer. Um, a reminder that today, Monday, is the last day to register to vote. Uh, Virginia does not have same-day registration, so make sure you check your status and sign up today. Uh, I don't know when you're listening to this, but that's a that's a you'll get a couple hours left. <laughs> yeah. Tell all your friends Hustle. in Virginia. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a big deal in Virginia. I want everyone to uh, to wake up there. And not the most important part, but you understand what kind of nationwide fucking political freakout we're in for. Oh, thank you. you. I don't forgot about that. that. That's uh, yes. I yeah. can't handle it. We can't do, deal with a freakout like that right dude, now. If for you the thought, takes. You thought the freakout over uh, Nancy Pelosi pulling the vote on the Biff was bad, which it was. You get you ain't seen nothing. We lose Virginia, and you know what? It will be deserved. It will be deserved if we lose Virginia. If if a lot of those moderates who voted for Joe Biden uh, decide to vote for Glenn Youngkin, or a lot of folks Democrats who voted for Joe Biden decided to stay home, that does say something about where we're headed in the midterms, and it's and it's not good. So and it's not a good place. Yeah. Uh, VoteSaveAmerica.com/slash/Virginia. Go there now and see how you can help out. When we come back from the break. Uh, Tommy and I talked to California Congressman Adam Schiff. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Congressman Adam Schiff, welcome back to the pod. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here in person. I know. I know. I think you're like our second in-person guest. Yeah. I don't know who the first was, but... Oh, I was going to say the, the first was going to be my warm up, but that's not a warm up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got the California crew back. Um, you've got a new book out called Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. Uh, it covers both impeachments, January 6th, a lot more. You wrote about uh, a couple sort of bizarre meetings with Trump, as I imagine every meeting with Trump is. Could you talk a little bit about um, the one after Devin Nunes's famous uh Midnight run? Yes. Um, well, it, it, this was a completely surreal experience. Uh, Nunes had gone on this midnight run in the middle of the night and supposedly gotten documents from a whistleblower that showed this Obama conspiracy to um, eavesdrop on the Trump administration. Of course, it was a whole charade because the whatever he got, he'd gotten from the White House and he went back to give it to the White House and nobody had seen what it was. And I was sitting in the bunker with the TV on. Um, watching a press conference, and uh, and they announced that I would be coming to the White House to review the documents. And I looked at my staff and I said, "I am." You know, th- uh, they said I was invited, and I'm like, "Really? That's news to me." And then, is the bunker like, like a, just a skiff in the House Intel Committee? Yes. Okay. Yes. It. So three floors below the Capitol, it's where the Intelligence Committee meets, Got and it. heavy vault doors, and and all the rest. Cool name. Uh, also. Yeah, oh yes. The bunker. Yes. Good name. Um, and so uh, one of my staff walks in while this press conference is going on uh, with an invitation from the White House to go to see these documents. And uh, so I go to the White House. 
Um, they won't let my staff come with me to see the documents. We're in this big fight over it. Um, and uh, and so I'm at the, the National Security Council talking to John Eisenberg, the, the lawyer. Uh, he's uh, trying to tell me that the agencies won't approve my staff director seeing the documents, even though uh, we both know that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I call him out on it. And uh, during the midst of this fight... Um, one of the president's staff comes in and says, the president wants to see you in the Oval Office, but pointing to my staff director says, he can't come. And um, I was frankly very worried that I would go to the Oval Office, Trump would then completely invent some phony conversation that never happened. And As he has done many times. Yes, yes. And <laughs> to uh, his I would, own staff. <laughs> I, would, I would have no witness. And yeah. uh, so I argued with the guy for a while. And finally, um, I didn't want the, the White House to also say that I was unwilling to meet with the president. So I went. So I go into the Oval Office and there's Trump sitting behind this desk. This courageous is the name of this desk uh, made from the timber of the ship that went through the Arctic. It has a storied history. We got to talk about these desk names. They're a little <laughs> yeah, so it's not the resolute desk then. You, yeah. I don't know there was outrageous. Well, I think it was, uh, shoot. Um, <laughs> we'll take your word for it. Yeah. yeah I, you know, maybe it was resolute. You've been in there more often than we but, have. Um, so um, he comes out behind the desk. And first of all, just seeing him behind the desk. Um, Real bummer. It, well, a bummer, <laughs> but it's like, it was so strange this person who did not belong behind that desk, um, you know, here was this guy who had played this successful businessman on TV when he wasn't successful. Uh, and now it was like he was playing the role of president when he wasn't really the president. Uh, but he comes behind the desk, shakes my hand, and the first thing he says is, you know, you would do a really good job. And when someone says that to you, your natural impulse is to say, well, so do you. Mm. Um but I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. <laughs> and there was this very awkward pause um, where I think I just said something like, thank you. <laughs> and uh, Also, you know that if you said something nice about him, that later when you're in a fight, he would tweet like, shifty shift used to say great things about me yeah, all the time. Exactly. And yes. now he's like, yeah. Well, in fact, during that meeting, uh, we got on the subject. I was trying to steer the conversation away from Russia. I didn't want to have him mischaracterize anything about Russia. Uh, so we talked about prescription drugs. At one point, um, he brought up Elijah Cummings, who had been one of the uh, leading forces in terms of uh, Medicare negotiating drug prices and bringing the price down. And he said, uh, you know, uh, Elijah says a lot of nice things about me. Now, I spent a lot of time with Elijah Cummings, mm-hmm. um, and I never heard him say anything yes, nice about the president. <laughs> but uh, uh, so um, – a- a- Finally, the president says, you know, do you have everything you need? And I said, no, your staff won't let me see my staff director come with me to watch, look at the documents. And uh, he says, well, I don't have a problem with it. Um, And I thought uh, at this point, I I wasn't even aware there were people standing behind me in the Oval Office. Uh, But I hear this commotion behind me when the president says that he's fine with, with having my staff director review the documents with me. They start groaning. Uh, and the president picks up on this and he says, you know, if they're okay with it, I'm okay with it. Of course, they were not okay with it. Um, but but the whole thing was just so otherworldly. Um, just seeing him in that office where he so clearly didn't belong. Um, yeah. And uh, I had only one other meeting in the Oval Office with him uh, during his tenure uh, when the Iranians downed one of our drones. 
Oh, that and, was the context for this one. Okay. Yes, and he was uh, he he had invited a, a number of the congressional leadership to talk about what the U.S. response ought to be, and I think they, his staff must have told him that uh, the chairs of this committee and that committee and the ranking members were coming, without telling him that I was coming. Um, that, uh, you know, that he knew the chair of the intelligence committee was going to be there, but he didn't put two and two together because, um, when he walked into the room, I was sitting across the table from where he sat down, he looked over and I was the first person he saw. I was there with uh, McConnell and, uh, uh, the Senate, uh, Intel leadership. And so he looks across the table and he sees me and he just physically blanches <laughs> and, uh, he says, uh, "Your relationship had soured at this point, yes. <laughs> long before this point." <laughs> and uh, he says, "I'm glad you're here." And I said, "Well, I'm glad that I'm here." <laughs> and uh, um, we were waiting for the speaker, who was uh, stuck in the Capitol meeting with a, a visiting head of state and trying to make small talk. And during this meeting, the outgoing Secretary of Defense and the incoming Mark Esper were both there because it was the transition. And I'd known Esper for a long time, and uh, he was not an ideologue, and I was kind of optimistic about you know what he might be like. Um, I didn't know that whether he had the gravitas for the job. Uh, I think, you know, frankly, the president didn't want anyone like Mattis again that could stand up to him. But uh, anyway, so just to make small talk, I said, you know, Mr. President, I think you made a great choice with uh, Mark Esper. I've known him a long time, and. Kiss of death for Esper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, the topic, the conversation moved on to other things. And then he comes back to it and he says, uh, just how long have you known Esper? Oh, no. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Everything is a conspiracy. I thought, oh, shit, I've killed his nomination. Uh, it is interesting. Like, look, credit to Trump for inviting a bipartisan group of officials to talk about that moment with Iran. I mean, what, what, later on he authorized an assassination of a top Iranian general named Qasem Soleimani and reportedly, you know, worked with the Israelis on all sorts of covert campaigns and assassinations and other efforts within Iran. But what was your sense of how hawkish he was in that moment in those discussions after that drone was shot down? Because I remember there was there was a Washington fever pitch of, you know, bloodlust for this poor robot that was uh, taken out in the ocean. This was really interesting because... I had the d distinct impression, you know, watching the other cabinet officials there and Trump's language and body language that he was very reluctant uh, to provoke a war with Iran uh, and that he felt he was being pushed by Pompeo or Bolton or others. Um, and uh, and so he, he was generally interested, I think, in hearing other views. Um, and when I had an opportunity to share my own, I emphasized that Congress had not authorized an attack on Iran, uh, that whatever we did, we should do in concert with the international community. Iran would love to split us off from the rest of the world uh, and isolate us instead of them. And whatever we did had to be proportional. And uh, it was fascinating. Bolton didn't say a word. Um, and the president never turned to him, didn't want his opinion. It, hmm. it was apparent. Pence didn't say a word until the very end of the... Uh, meeting when I think he had to ask the president's permission to say something. Go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever Pence said was so inconsequential, I can't even remember it. Yeah, um, that tracks. <laughs> but but, but you know, interestingly, he ended up calling off whatever he had called on. Yeah. So it does seem like the meeting had an impact on him. And 
Um, this was interesting in two respects. One, that he actually was interested in a contrary view or, or having me there, uh, which may not have been his intent. But, but then later when they did um, – when he did authorize this killing of Suleimani, this incredibly provocative act, which was really went beyond anything that we were discussing in that meeting, um, I wondered what had changed mm -hmm. uh, because we were we were on the uh, uh, in the middle of the impeachment at, at that point, um, uh, right around the trial time, and you could not foreclose the possibility at all that this was his effort to wag the dog. Um, that whatever reluctance he had of, of a provocation with Iran in the face of his impeachment and the need to generate Republican support evaporated because at the end of the day, the only thing that mattered to Donald Trump was Donald Trump. Yeah. Did Kevin McCarthy really admit to you that he lied to the press about something you said? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I mean, everything I ever needed to know about him, I learned on a, on a plane. Um, this was 2010, and we were seated together on United Airlines, flying back to the Capitol. Uh, I really don't think I'd spoken two words to him up until that time, not not for any dislike, but his district is far from mine. We just never had any opportunity to speak. And we had that kind of conversation you have on a plane before the movie starts and you can escape. Right. Um, it, <laughs> it was a total nothing burger who was going to win the midterms. And I said, I thought the economy was going to be good and we were going to win the midterms. And he thought the Republicans were going to win the midterms. And he got you there. 2010. <laughs> that was a tough one for us. <laughs> you know, he, you know, <laughs> his forecasting was better than mine. That's true. But, um, you know, the movie starts uh, and that's the end of the conversation. We get to D.C. We go our separate ways. Uh, I don't remember what his position in the Republican Party at the time was, but he gave a press briefing that night unbeknownst to me. And he told the press that I had said that the Republicans were going to win the election, which was absurd uh, and completely false. Literally the opposite. And literally the opposite. And so I didn't know about this uh, that night because um, I had to wait till the newspaper come out in the morning, came out in the morning to even know that he'd given a briefing. So, a, you know, one of the Hill papers comes out in the morning and it quotes McCarthy as saying, everybody knows Republicans are going to win the election. I sat next to Adam Schiff on the airplane last night, and he even he admitted the Republicans were going to win the midterms. And I, I was just, this, just lying for lying. lying's sake. Oh, it was it was breathtaking. Um, and I made a beeline for the House floor and went right up to him in the middle of the House floor, and I said, "Kevin, um, I would have thought if we were having a private conversation, it was a private conversation. But if it wasn't, you know, you told the press the exact opposite of what I said." And he looks at me and he says, "Yeah, I know, Adam." but you know how it goes. And I'm like, no, Kevin, I don't know how it goes. You just make shit up and that's how you operate because that's not how I operate. But that is how he operates. Yeah. Um, and in that respect, he was really made for a moment like this when um, his party doesn't believe the truth matters at all. You make up your own alternate facts and uh, you say anything, you do anything to get power, to keep power. Um, and in, in that sense... McCarthy and Trump were really made for each other. I imagine uh, McCarthy kind of pocketing his lie before he puts on like How to Train Your Dragon or whatever, whatever kids movie was out in 2020. So you, you started this by mentioning, we talked about Devin Nunes, another member of the uh, California delegation here. He was, he's the ranking member on the Intel committee uh, in the House side. That used to be a committee where there was more bipartisanship than in other 
parts of the Congress. Um, but Nunes has gotten extremely angry, extremely partisan, extremely litigious. He's suing um, a cow that made fun of him on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Still, I believe. Uh, he might be Still suing happening. a couple cows. What happened to <laughs> Devin Nunes in your... Has he always been like this? Were we confused? Like, no, no, he he hasn't always been like this. And in fact, for uh, years and years, we got along very well. We worked together very well. He, he was in the mold of a John Boehner country club Republican. Um, in fact, uh, one of my favorite uh, expressions that Nunes used during the Tea Party movement is he described the Tea Party as lemmings with suicide vests. I remember that, yeah. And that was where he was coming from in the era before Trump. Um, what happened, uh, I think, to Devin Nunes is he got to know Trump during the campaign. He wasn't, I, I think, a supporter of Trump's, but Trump was in the Central Valley. Uh, they spent a couple days together. And after the election, Trump uh, offered him a position on the transition team, and he was helping to pick cabinet people. I'm, I'm told, I don't know whether it's correct, that he uh, helped, Pick Mike Flynn, for example. Oh, wow. Uh, Good job. <laughs> exactly. Thanks for that. Exactly. Yeah. Although, egg on our face, too, for Obama having him in a <laughs> yeah. job. Yeah. That's, yeah. Anyway. That's um, and, uh, and I think that when, when the election was over and it was clear the Russians had intervened to help Trump and there were all these unexplained contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russians, um, the investigation fell to our committee and he was chairing it at the time. And he had to try to both chair an independent investigation, and he still wanted to maintain his seat at Donald Trump's table, um, which would have been a difficult thing for anyone to do, but it was particularly difficult for mm -hmm. Devin Nunes. And um, where things blew up is our very first open hearing of the Russian investigation was with James Comey. Um, now, Nunes and I knew because we were part of the Gang of Eight that there was an investigation into the Trump campaign that had been confidential. We did not know that Comey was going to make it public at that hearing. And so it was a bombshell to the public, and it was it was kind of shocking to to us as well that this had now become public. And, um, of course, we now know the, the whole sordid um, double standard where the Clinton investigation was very much in the public yeah. and the Trump investigation was in, in secret. Um, so Comey discloses this in this bombshell testimony. Um, the very next night is when Nunes goes on the midnight run. Um, and I, I have to imagine what happened is that the White House came down on him like a ton of bricks. Uh, we were, we as Democrats on the committee were very well prepared for the hearing with Comey. And we walked through methodically all of the issues that come, had come up, all of the ties that we knew about at the time between the Trump campaign and Russia, all of the things that needed to be investigated. And on top of that, you had this bombshell. The Republican members were completely fixated on leaks. And I think to the public that was watching and I think to the president who was watching uh, from down Pennsylvania Avenue, the hearing was an unmitigated disaster for Trump and the Republicans. At least that's how they viewed it. Um, and so they must have concocted this scheme of the, the midnight run and these documents and this bogus allegation that the Trump campaign was spied on by uh, Obama. Um, when that blew up, uh, which it blew up within a week, uh, when it was publicly revealed that the place that Nunes went to get these documents from this supposed whistleblower was the White House, um, it was so, I think, utterly humiliating um, that 
it, it really forged a much closer bond between Nunes and Trump and all of the Trump apologists and acolytes. Um, and, and I think it was this really um, formative uh, event in his life that really bonded him uh, to this hard right. Um, and, uh, um, but, uh, you know, th- this is really what Midnight in Washington is, is about. It, it really tries to tell the story. I try to tell readers how people went through this transformation, how people that I worked with and admired and respected came to embrace this completely amoral president. Um, it's, really, it's let me this question thinking about all this, like you, you helped impeach Donald Trump twice once for inciting an insurrection that you are currently in the middle of investigating. Despite all of that, he is gearing up to run for president again with the full support of the Republican Party and probably half of its voters, at least. Does that ever make you wonder that maybe impeachments, investigations, uh, everything that the DOJ has done, the FBI, like all of our institutions, all of the tools that we have to hold people in power accountable are useless at this point because the Republican Party is the way it is? No, uh, they're not useless. And, and in fact, the system held, if barely, uh, over the last four years. Uh, and I think that, that what we did to expose the president's misconduct in Ukraine and his uh, incitement of insurrection and what the Justice Department and Bob Mueller did to expose what, what it did um, contributed to the public understanding of who he was and the danger that he was. Uh, and he lost. Um, now, the danger is still here. And, and as you say, it is, it is really remarkable, maybe even unfathomable after all that, that he is still a viable candidate for president. I, I look at one, one scenario alone that shows you how far we've gone down the rabbit hole. Man runs for president on a platform of building a wall that Mexico is going to pay for. An absurd promise to begin with. Um, he becomes president. Of course, Mexico doesn't pay for a wall. A wall doesn't really get built. So his closest advisors, Steve Bannon among them, um, start raising money from his own supporters to pay for the wall, and then they steal it. Yeah, total grift. And Trump pardons them. They're stealing from his own people, but the, <laughs> and but he pardons them. But it, it does seem like the the only check on his power now and the power of the Republican Party is people voting laws, institutions, none of that's really holding. Like you said, he, he he lost, but he lost because people voted. He didn't lose because he was impeached and removed from office or anyone was held accountable or anyone like that. Like it just, I, I worry that we get to the point where Trump gets the nomination and then we're back to the election being about 40,000 votes in three swing states yeah. and that's it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the, the Republican party right now um, is a cult uh, an autocratic cult around the person of the former president. As long as that's what the GOP is, they just need to be beaten. There's no negotiating with them. There's no working with them on on the big, big ticket items because they're just in a different place. Uh, you know, they're celebrating the Victor Orbans of the world. Uh, they're having their conferences in Budapest because wannabe dictator is now their model. Uh, and... As long as that's the case, we have to fight tooth and nail to save our democracy, uh, which means we need to fight tooth and nail to get H.R. 1 uh, passed and the voting rights legislation passed and 
and we need to pass the Protecting Our Democracy Act, and we need to make sure that we overcome any obstacle put in our way to mobilize our people to get out. Um, there's not much persuasion going on. Uh, it's about mobilizing your people. And right now, we, we need to feel that sense of mission that this is about mobilizing to save our democracy. Um, the, the system held but barely. And what they're doing now in legislatures around the country uh, in disenfranchising people and equally pernicious in stripping independent elections officials of their powers and giving them over to partisan legislatures and, uh, and boards, they are setting up to do insurrection by other means. Um, on, the, on the January 6th Select Committee, you know, we are very mindful of the fact that there may be another violent attack on the Capitol. But my own feeling is, if there is, it will fail like the last one. If we lose our democracy, it's going to be what's going on around the country right now. Um, in setting up to succeed, for the Republicans to succeed, where they failed in the last presidential election, that is to overturn the results if they lose. That, to me, is, is the most pressing risk. Yeah. Look, violent agreement at this table. I, I don't doubt for one second your sincerity, but you're right. I mean, the, the system held, but the system is being tinkered with and changed as we speak in state legislatures. And, you know, like you're full-throated about the need for HR1 to pass, but it seems dead in the water. No one, like you, we've got Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, others in the Senate who will not budge on the filibuster. So people like us, we feel like we're tearing our hair out. You know, like we're like the the political Cassandras of of 2020. You can see this train coming. Mix a couple of metaphors here. Like we're it. all about to get just destroyed by gerrymandering, voter suppression, voter subversion laws, and you know the, these institutionalist dinosaurs in the Senate won't do what needs to be done to change things. And I guess I'm just sort of being pissed off out loud, but I'm wondering what you'd say to activists who sort of share this frustration that we feel. Yeah, well. Uh, look, I, I, sh I share the sense of alarm. Um, I had lunch with a couple of friends of mine, married couple, uh, both in their mid-90s a month ago. And I asked them, have you ever been, have you ever seen anything like this? And they said, we've never been more concerned about the fate of our country and our democracy than we are now. Uh, we remember the Depression and World War II and Vietnam and Korea. Um, we never, during any of those times, wondered whether the country would go on as a democracy, but we do worry about it now. Um, and, you know, I wrote this book because I wanted to sound the alarm about this, but I, but I also wrote the book because I want to give people optimism that there is a path out of this. Um, and to me, what, what I found most inspiring over this really dark time are seeing some of those heroic people who did step up uh, and who ought to be an encouragement to all of us. Um, I remember vividly watching Marie Ivanovich walk into this hearing room. Um, someone who had been attacked and vilified by the president and Giuliani and by others um, so to, to the point where she was called as our ambassador uh, to get on the next plane out of Ukraine because they couldn't vouch for her safety anymore. And she comes in, she sits down at this witness, witness table alone, staring down the, the most hostile uh, Republican members in the Congress, some of whom, one of whom was put on the committee just to be a hostile uh, member, Jim Jordan. And, you know, she had served in these dangerous places around the world. Um, she had been told by the president's uh, people in the State Department not to testify. And she defied them. And had she not done that, 
we might never have known the full story of what the president did in withholding hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid from an ally at war with Russia to help them to help to, to get them to help him cheat in the election. Um, people like her ought to give us hope. Um, and and the thing is that you know none of us uh, are in a position like she is to make that kind of a difference, but we're all in a position to make a difference. Uh, and and we just need to find out where we can do that in our lives. Um, and and if we do that, um, we're going to get through this. At, but if, if the more we do, uh, we'll determine how long it's going to take to get through this time. I have no doubt we will look back on this as a successful democracy about an awful gauntlet we ran through as a country. We will we will wonder how it was possible. Um, but we will look back on this. When you're in the midst of it, it's hard to see how it comes to an end. Um, but but we will get through this, and it, it will require us all, especially the activist core, not to despair. Uh, we, we don't have the luxury of despair. Uh, as the speaker likes to say, we don't agonize, we organize. We have to organize. I mean, I, look, I've been an optimist forever, worked for Barack Obama, it's hard not to be. Um, but and you're a Red Sox fan, so that's not been easy. Yeah, all we're the all time. Red Sox fans here, so we get that too. No, but I'm just trying to like see the path out, right? Like, do you guys, have you guys talked about like a backup plan on voting rights? Like, there's all these great ideas. We know what it takes to protect our democracy, not just because some people stand up once in a while, which is admirable, but like in a systemic way with laws. You have the Protect Our Democracy Act that you're trying to push. We got voting rights legislation. People have talked about amending the Electoral Act. Uh, to make sure that there's, you know, we're not overturning elections. But none of this is getting done uh, before the 2022 elections or even the 2024 elections with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema there. Joe Manchin's not even going to remove the filibuster to fucking get, you know, prevent default <laughs> at this point. So, like, have you talked to Speaker Pelosi or anyone else in leadership about, like, what are we going to do to protect our democracy in advance of the midterms in 2024 if we can't get anything else done? Or is it just, hey, we got to organize and we got to get out the vote, which is what the White House has sort of been saying? Yeah. Well, you know, I think there are a couple of tracks. Uh, one, of, one of the most important, uh, and I think the president is exactly right about this, is making sure that we have a positive record of, of uh, achievement for the American people to run on in the midterms. Um, and that means passing the Build Back Better Act and the infrastructure bill which we will get done. Um, and it, it won't be pretty. It hasn't been pretty already, um, but it will get done. And when it gets done, that will be huge for the American people. Um, and, and this is, uh, I think, fully integral to saving our democracy too, because one of the reasons we are where we are and our democracy is so on edge is that the, the economy, the global economy has changed so dramatically in the last few decades um, with globalization and automation and millions of people in the middle class desperately worried about falling out of the middle class, that they that's that produced very ripe, fertile soil for a despot, for a demagogue, someone with a quick answer to their difficulties, that answer being, it's because of all the people who don't look like you. And um, a democracy at the end of the day has to prove that it can deliver. Uh, and, and so these bills that would really deliver for the American people in a way we haven't seen since the New Deal, I think are, are also part of the pro-democracy agenda. But in addition to the, the near-term plan of getting those bills passed, uh, we need a midterm plan, and, and, and not just for the midterms, but we, we need a plan to 
and the gerrymander, um, which makes the House unrepresentative of a majority. It, it essentially guarantees minority rule for large periods of each decade until we can overcome it. Um, we need to rebalance the Senate so it's more representative of the American people, so you don't have 23% of the the people in the country controlling 60% of the votes in the Senate. We need to do away with the filibuster. And we need to get to that point in the multi-state compact where we effectively do away with the Electoral College so that the majority elects the president, the majority controls the Senate, and the majority controls the House. As long as we have a minority controlling things, um, how long can a democracy persist if a minority of, a, of, a, of the, the voters um, are running the country? And so um, in addition to the very near-term imperative of getting these New Deal bills passed, um, we, we're going to need to make these structural changes. Um, and in terms of what happens if we can't get H.R. 1 passed and what happens if we can't get the voting rights stuff through, um, we we are pursuing um, both the legislative track the and the filibuster track, the do whatever we can to persuade the mansions and the cinemas track, but also we are um, trying to develop a Stacey Abrams-like effort in all 50 states. We're not waiting to see whether we succeed in the legislative path because we can't. Uh, what, what she demonstrated is you can't wait until election time to develop a relationship suddenly with people you want to vote for you. Um, so those things are going on contemporaneously. Um, I really do think, and I've communicated this to the White House, um, that we need to bring a sense of urgency, though, to the voting rights issue um, as if it's existential to our democracy because it is, and it's existential to the presidency. Um, if they can gerrymander their way into the majority and the clock is ticking, um, and Kevin McCarthy, God forbid, should ever get anywhere near the speaker's office, they may succeed where they failed in overturning the election. Yeah. Uh, last question. I know you're now the uh, DCCC battleground finance chair. Can you commit to sending us fewer emails with all capital letters screaming at us to donate? And text. Oh, and text. That's a really tough one. <laughs> all right. it is a lot. Right. Who's opening that shit? Come I, on. I'm going to donate. I will donate. I'll the, donate more if you stop emailing. Yeah. No, I think you All should. Right. I what, think what, that's if, a what if I just cut down on the capital letters? But yeah, okay. like just like our democracy is over. F alarm, alarm, emoji, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's what I'm looking at. Fewer emojis. Well, unlike Kevin McCarthy, um, we will make sure that everyone knows you said that we will win the midterms. We will win the midterms. In 2021, and, 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 it's broadcast and for all Let me just give, give people a bit of optimism about that. Um. We had, a, we had a special election a couple months ago in New Mexico, as you know. Our candidate not only won, but did better than Biden performed in the district. And that's early, but it's suggestive that our people are still highly motivated to turn out. Um, without Trump on the ballot, their people are less motivated. Um, we need to make sure, we can only control our own voters. We need to make sure that we communicate with them, that we give them the, the information, the reason, to vote, um, that we perform for them, um, we can only do our part. And, and I'm confident if we do that, we will hold on to the House, we'll gain ground in the Senate, we can do away with the filibuster if we haven't already, uh, and we can begin the process of turning the page um, and, uh, and restore our democracy.
We will end on that note of optimism. Yeah. Uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, thanks for joining. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Adam Schiff uh, for joining us. And I uh, hope you all have a great day and we'll talk to you on Thursday. Build back booter. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more like uh, Biden's like spooky agenda or spooky yeah. fall or also the, the terrifying the, agenda. The death of the agenda, oh, the, no. le- the graveyard of the. Yeah, we get all that. Uh, you, get all, you forgot about all that. Trick too. or treat. There's like a candy metaphor, like plucking all the items out of. The yeah, more, more trick than treat for Biden and the Democrats. There we go. Oof. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our producer is Haley Muse. And Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitrio, Brian Semmel, Caroline Reston, Madison Hallman, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim who film and upload these episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crooked media. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I'd Probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed.